Uh, lovely to see you tonight. Thank you for coming. Uh, for any who don't know me, my name is Joel Lockridge and I'm the pastor here in Clock Mills. Uh, this is the second of three nights of special meetings that we're having. In some ways there's nothing special about uh, these meetings. We're not having a big fuss, there's nothing fancy, there's nothing to whip anybody up into a frenzy. Uh, there's no smoke machines, no strobe lightings, no grand music. It's just going to be me speaking for about 30 minutes on the most important subject in the world. So actually though, although in one sense there's nothing very special, there's something very, very special about tonight. Because when we open up the Bible, it's the very word of God. It's God speaking to us Today it's the living word of God and it doesn't need anything else to to jazz it up uh, and make it more special. These three nights we're thinking about how our lives and Jesus Christ relate. And we're basing our thoughts on a threefold description of Jesus. It's in the last book of the Bible, the book called Revelation. This is God's final message to us, or the final part of his message to us, his final revealing, uh, hence the name, revelation or revealing. The final thing that he reveals that we need to know, and it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's uh, what we see in the very first verse. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what God wants us to know, the last thing, the most important thing he wants mankind to know is that everything is centred on Jesus Christ. So if you want to understand your life and our world and God, you need to understand who Jesus is. So that's why what we think about this evening is so important. We'll read uh, some verses from the start of Revelation together. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And here's this threefold description of the Lord Jesus. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. we just take a moment to pray and ask for God's help as we think about his word this evening. Great God in heaven, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. 
You're the one who is the source of all things and all things have their goal in you. You're the one who is, the one who was, who always was, and the one who always will be, and the one who is coming. The one who's coming in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And every eye will see him coming in the clouds, and those who've pierced him with their sin will wail on account of him. But we thank you that before that day, there's a chance for mercy. And a chance to hear of what the Lord Jesus has done as the firstborn of the dead. We pray that we would know your almighty power tonight at work amongst us by the Holy Spirit. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our topic tonight is who do you hope in? Who or what do you hope in? And as a Liverpool fan, I know something about hope. As a Liverpool fan born in 1987, my whole footballing life has been a pendulum swinging between hope and despair, more often towards despair, and with very little fulfilment. I'm too young to remember our last uh, league win 29 years ago. And yet, all us red men, we walk on, walk on with hope in your hearts. Always hope. And of course that was hope that was freshly dashed at the weekend. But there's still hope. There's always hope. And the disappointment of not winning the Premier League last weekend. Well that's uh, numbed by the prospect of a Champions League final on the 1st of June. And then of course there's always next year. Uh, The manager Jurgen Klopp himself said at the weekend. In this moment if you really want something... You feel the disappointment as well. That's what we feel at the moment. We made unbelievably big steps. And I really expect more to come. Everybody knows that we will go again. 100%. Crushing disappointment and yet hope. There's always hope. Everybody knows we will go again. 100%. And yet actually... Uh, As I reflect on 32 years nearly of following football and playing football, my life in football teaches me that hope in football is a false hope, uh, an unfounded hope. It ultimately always disappoints. Now what do I mean by that? Well, think of it like this. Even if you win all the trophies this year, very quickly the next season comes around for you to be knocked off your perch as champions. All the victories are only ever momentary. And, and disappointment is only ever, at most, a few months away. More often than not, a few weeks, even just days away. You see, football only, ultimately, always disappoints And you see this actually with Man United. Not that I would want to get any uh, sly digs in this evening, but I have to admit there's a team that have come closer than anybody to utter domination. Between 1993 and 2013, 13 Premier Leagues, 5 FA Cups and 2 Champions League trophies. In the years 2007 to 2009, 3 Premier Leagues in a row. As close as anybody has come to utter domination. Ask any Man United fan now. And it's despair and despondency. They had to watch their two biggest rivals 
uh, fighting for the league. And on the last day of the season, they weren't cheering Man United goals. They were cheering Man City goals because that meant Liverpool wouldn't win the title. That's what they had been reduced to from the heights of utter uh, domination. You see, it doesn't last. It's only ever momentary. It ultimately always disappoints some way. You see, even, even arriving at the, the hoped-for destination, it leaves a gaping disappointment. Ryan Giggs played for Man United during their most successful spell. 13 league titles, two Champions League uh, trophies, rightly regarded as one of the all-time great football players. Writing in May 2017 in the Daily Telegraph, he said, this is a player who was at the top. I have to admit, I never really enjoyed the games. I had a feeling of worthlessness. As a footballer, you wonder if your teammates are looking at you and asking the questions you're asking of yourself. Why can't he hit a decent pass? Why is he always injured? What's wrong with him? Do you hear that? Never really enjoyed the games. A feeling of worthlessness. Ryan Giggs had all you could ever hope for as a footballer. And he found that it disappointed. It always ultimately disappoints. And what's true of football and true of the experience of many footballers, it's actually true of so much of life when you think about it and look at it. People put their hope in all kinds of things and live with a permanent sense of if only. If only I had more money. If only I could get a pay rise or a promotion or a better job. If only my wife or my husband were more beautiful or handsome or more fulfilling. If only I could have that opportunity. If only I could have a sport air car. If only I could lose weight. If only so-and-so would love me. If only there were more customers in my business. If only I could get a new kitchen, a new house. A permanent sense of if only. Always looking for something to, to move our happiness from here up to the next level. And yet happiness always remains some kind of hazy destination somewhere in the future. Never getting any closer. And there's always another if only. If only now had this. And and every road you think will take you to the destination of happiness and fulfilment and uh, fulfilled hopes. You find it just brings you right back to the same place you were at before you had it. There's always another if only. Maybe though there is somebody sitting here tonight saying, well, I'm perfectly happy and content. I have all that I hoped for. I have no disappointments in life. There's nothing lacking in my life. All my hopes have been realised and fulfilled. Well, I doubt that's the case. Uh, But if so, either you're not seeing the whole picture, you have a simplistic view of life, or you're lying, or you're just deluded. Because there's one thing that levels the playing field for all of us no matter what we have and no matter what hopes we think we've had fulfilled there's one thing that levels the playing field for all of us there's one experience that tests the strength of your hope 
It's strength, it's resilience, it's durability. It's the fact that we will all face death. That's the experience that levels the playing field and that tests the strength of our hope. And let, let's cut straight to the chase here. We're all different here. We're different families, different jobs, different backgrounds, different experiences. But we've at least one thing in common. We're all dying. We're all dying as we sit here, one way or another. That's where our lives are going. That's the one thing we can say with any certainty about the future. Unless the Lord Jesus comes before that, we will all die. I was talking to somebody recently, and uh, news of a of a bereavement in the in the community and uh, amongst their neighbours had just come through uh, a bereavement due to cancer. And he said to me, "You know, it's amazing with all the the treatments and all the research." I haven't been able to stop it yet. Such a simple comment, but isn't that so profound as well and so true? Take the charity Cancer Research UK. They do wonderful work. Uh, 4,000 researchers employed, 200 clinical trials, 4,000 employees, 40,000 volunteers, all aimed at the goal, according to their motto, together we will beat cancer. And they've been around in one form or another for a hundred years. And yet they haven't beaten cancer. And 450 people in the UK die of cancer every day. And even if Cancer Research UK do eventually beat cancer, and that that would be wonderful, we would rejoice in that, Well, cancer only accounts for a quarter of UK deaths. So what about the other 1,150 people dying every day? They're still dying. And the quarter that we would have freed from death by cancer, you're just moving them to another cause of death. We haven't found a cure for death. You see, death is the one thing in all of our diaries. We don't know when, but it's there. It's there. It's the one thing in all of our diaries because God has sent death into the world. He sent it as punishment for sin, for rebelling against him. And think of it like this. If God is the the giver of life And in our sin, in our rebellion, as a race, as men and women, we say, well, we don't want you, God. We don't want you, the giver of life. Well, then he takes away life. This is what you get when you don't want the giver of life. Death. Isn't the kind of God that we don't get death straight away. That we get some life But the day comes when the giver of life calls time on life, our life, and our senses will shut down and all our possessions will be left behind. We came into the world empty-handed and we'll leave it empty-handed and we'll be parted from all of our loved ones and all of our achievements and all of our reputations will be left behind. And all that's left will be us standing before God. 
That's all there'll be. The reality of this uh, hit home to me a number of months ago. Standing beside an open grave, it was wet, it had been wet, the ground was wet, and as sometimes happens, the grave was filling with water. And They were trying valiantly to empty the grave of water, I don't understand why, to save the indignity of being put into a, a huge puddle in the ground, in effect. You know, with every scoop that was bailed out, you just see more water running down the sides into the, the, the grave. And, and it just struck me, what, what's the point of doing this? See, even if you get all the water out now, as soon as you put the soil back on top, the water will gather. And the next time it rains, the water will gather there. Ultimately, it's going to end up as a body in a puddle, in a hole in the ground. And that's where life ends for us. For every single one of us. And there's, there's no escaping that. That's where it ends for us. That's the horror of death in this world. And it comes to us all. There's no escape. It comes to every one of us. And obviously the, these messages have been in my heart for a number of weeks as I've been thinking through them. And as I was thinking about this, it was just brought home to me by the horror of those Easter Sunday bombs in Sri Lanka. 250 plus killed. All types. All nations. Mostly Sri Lankans, but yet Britons, two US citizens, Turks, Portuguese, Indians, Danes, Swiss, Spaniards, Aussies. No nationality was exempt. Famous people and unknown people. One of the first victims identified was a celebrity chef from Sri Lanka. There were whole families and there were individuals. The Fernando family of five. Their kids aged just six, four and eleven months. And then there was the man Ramesh Raju who confronted one of the bombers and saved many lives. An individual. Families and individuals. Nobody exempt from death. All religions. There were Buddhists killed. There were Hindus killed. There were Christians killed. There were Muslims killed. Nobody exempt from death. The Protestants at Zion Church in Batacola died, and the Catholics at Mass in the other places died. Wealthy people in the luxury hotels died. The poor labourers working for the minimum wage in the hotel died. Seven political activists from India, people from the political class. All types of careers. IT professionals, taxi drivers, firefighters, airline workers. It just brought home to me. There's not a class of people on this earth exempt from death. It touches every one of us and that's the way it is. And probably most poignant from all the casualties of that uh, tragedy in Sri Lanka... It was the story of Anders Hulk Povlesen, Denmark's richest man, uh, an estimated worth of four billion pounds. Uh, is a huge stake in the ASOS online shop. 
and the owner of a huge estate in the Scottish Highlands, the, the biggest private landlord or, or landowner in the UK. And in those Easter Sunday uh, attacks, he lost his three children, Alma, Agnes and Alfred. How, how awful that is. How awful that must have been for him. What grief. And I'm sure, wouldn't he give every penny of his four billion pounds to bring back his children? But he can't. All the money in the world. And he's not exempt from death. And even if he could, wouldn't, wouldn't it just be temporary? Because death will come to him one day and death would come to the children again. It comes to us all. So the important question for us to ask then is, well, what hope do we have in the face of this? What hope do you have in the face of this? The thing that you're living for, the thing that you're looking forward to, is it going to get you through death or is it going to leave you facing death empty-handed? Where lies your hope in the face of death? And friends, there's only one thing that will give you hope in the face of death. And it's not family. It's not your achievements. It's not your reputation. It's not your money. It's not your background. It's not your abilities. Death has defeated every one of those things. There's only one who has defeated death itself. The one called, in the verse that we read tonight, the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. The first to come forth from the dead. The first to come out from amongst the dead. The first to conquer death. The first to rise from this inescapable fate. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central pillar of Christianity. It's the thing that makes Christianity different from all other religions. We have a living leader. Every week Christians meet together to celebrate the resurrection. Historically Christians from the very start celebrated Easter as it were every week. On the first day of the week on the resurrection day. It's so central to Christianity. One writer in the Bible says this as he reflects on it. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. It's all a waste. It's all pointless. It's all useless if he hasn't been raised from the dead. If the tomb's not empty, the whole thing is a waste of time. This is how central the resurrection of Jesus is to the Christian faith. And, and friends, if this is indeed true about Jesus that changes everything that we've just spoken about everything he said about himself must be true if he's risen from the dead he must be God himself because only God has the power of life and death he must too have in some way defeated death and its, and its grip and the curse and the curse of sin and if he's conquered death and, and, and master over death and lord over death which is the last enemy which is the final enemy the enemy we can't escape from but if he has escaped if he's defeated it and lord over it well then he must be lord over everything else everything else which includes you 
Lord over you? If he is indeed the firstborn from the dead. And friends, the evidence of his resurrection is compelling. One author has called it the best attested fact in history. Certainly the best attested fact from ancient history. What about some of the reasons that are given to explain it away? Didn't, didn't, didn't he just faint on the cross? He didn't actually die. and Put in a cold tomb, he, 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 he revived again. Well, the Romans were expert killers. They knew the difference between somebody who had swooned or fainted and somebody who was dead. Their lives depended on him being dead. That's the way the system worked. He didn't faint. The disciples came and stole his body. Why would the disciples die then for something that they knew was a lie? If they'd stolen the body. Surely somebody amidst all the pressure that the early Christians faced, somebody would have cracked and said, it's all a hoax, we took the body. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. And they went to a tomb that was empty and the body was still in his tomb. Well, if that was the case, the authorities who didn't want Jesus to be alive simply needed to go to the right tomb and show everybody the body. And they didn't. They spread the story that the disciples had stolen it. A ludicrous story whenever you've had an armed guard on the tomb. And when the disciples were hiding in locked rooms, they were that fearful. So that's the excuses blown away. And actually, when you look at the evidence, we have four first-hand eyewitness account, accounts in the four Gospels that in 2,000 years have not been discredited. This is the, the best attested fact in history. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He's living and breathing now. He lives forever. Death has no hold on him. Sin and Satan and death, they did their worst and, and he conquered them. They, they lost. He is the firstborn from the dead. And the incredible thing is, if he's the firstborn from the dead, doesn't that imply that there will be more? Doesn't that imply that he'll simply be the first in the family? That there'll be siblings coming after him in the family? That he's simply the oldest in the family? He's the firstborn from among the dead. He has a family of brothers and sisters that he will rise, that he will raise from the dead. Since he is Lord and Master of death. And that's what he holds out and what he offers to mankind today. He holds out his eternal life and says, come and join me. To anyone who will come to him from their sin. To anyone who will believe in him. Who will place their hope in him. All their hope in him. To them he gives eternal life. And friends, this is the only hope that doesn't disappoint This is the only hope that doesn't leave you standing, facing death, utterly empty-handed and destitute. His death and his resurrection is what rescues us from death. This is the only hope for life that goes on beyond the grave. For life as it should be. For, For a life knowing and enjoying God like we've been made to. 
This is the only hope to be reunited with family and friends the other side of the grave. It's also the only hope for all the challenges we face in life. That his resurrection power would work in us. Because if he can overcome the challenge of death, the last enemy, the greatest enemy, he can overcome all the challenges of our lives. So will you put your trust in him and submit to him and trust in him? For in return for this hope, he demands your faith. Your faith, not your religiosity, not your attending church, and not praying occasionally, not sentimental thoughts about God. He demands a life-altering faith. A faith that turns its back on its own selfish ways and a faith that lays all that you are and all that you have down in service for him. This this hope requires a faith that, that forsakes sin, but more than that, follows him. This is what he demands and requires. In Cromwell's time in England... Three, four hundred years ago. A young soldier in his army was to be executed for some crime. His fiancée pleaded for his life, but to to no uh, avail. Cromwell's sentence uh, stood. There was no hope for him. When When the curfew bell rang in the camp, he was to be hung. So when the bell would ring, all hope would be gone. No hope, just death. Curfew time came, and the bell ringer pulled the rope of the bell, and there was no sound. Pulled again, still no sound. He pulled harder, still no sound. Pulled harder again, still no sound. The curfew bell did not ring. He went and investigated. What did he find? The young soldier's fiancée had climbed the bell tower and had put herself in between the hammer and the bell. And she was receiving blow after blow after blow, bruising and battering her body. So the bell would not ring. So there would be some hope. She gave herself to give hope where there was no hope. And Cromwell, apparently stirred by this love, he overturned the sentence. The bell didn't ring. The soldier was not killed. She gave herself to give hope in the face of death, where there was no hope. Friends, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. He gave himself over to death. That we who have no hope in the face of death might actually have hope in the face of death. And that bell of hopelessness, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, that bell of hopelessness doesn't sound for you. Doesn't sound, doesn't ring. He's defeated death. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Let's pray as we close.
Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we are mortal creatures, cursed with death because of our sin, and that's right and just. We rejected the giver of life. Why should we have life? But we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And by giving himself, we can have hope in the face of the hopelessness of death. The firstborn from among the dead of many brothers and sisters that he will raise because he is the Lord of life and death. He holds the keys of death and hell in his hand. He determines who passes in and out. And we thank you that he's kind and merciful and offers hope in the face of death to all those who will turn from the rebellion against you and follow you in in faith and in trust, placing all their hope, not in what, what we do, but in what you do. Thank you for this message of mercy and love and of hope in the face of death. We pray that we all would know this hope, that there would be no one here leaving with unnecessary helplessness and hopelessness in the face of their own mortality. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.